FBI Director Christopher Wray and other top national security officials address the most substantial threats that face the U.S. Wray says TikTok, the video app owned by China, screams of security concerns. Today is Wednesday, March 8th, and you're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, hundreds of scientists, doctors, and bioethicists gathered to debate the pros and cons of manipulating DNA to create genetically modified humans. While the specter of designer babies is easier to conjure, the less you know about genetics. We'll have an upshot from the summit. News that Julie Hsu was nominated to be the next Labor Secretary brought cheers from unions and Democratic lawmakers, especially Asian Americans, but that doesn't mean she'll have an easy confirmation. These stories, Wall Street numbers, and the forecast are coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. A Justice Department investigation finds that the Louisville Metro Police Department in Kentucky has engaged in a pattern of civil rights violations and unconstitutional policing. That includes the excessive force as well as the unlawful discrimination against black people. Here's NPR's Ryan Lucas. Speaking in Louisville, Attorney General Merrick Garland ticked off a long list of violations identified by the Justice Department's investigation. That includes conducting searches based on invalid warrants and conducting unlawful stops. This conduct is unacceptable. It is heartbreaking. It erodes the community trust necessary for effective policing. The announcement comes almost two years after the DOJ opened its investigation in the wake of Breonna Taylor's killing. Garland says the Louisville government and police department have entered into an agreement in principle for a consent decree with an independent monitor to oversee police reforms. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. In Tennessee, a court has temporarily blocked today's planned release of new footage from the night several Memphis police officers beat up an apparently unarmed black motorist following a traffic stop in late January. Defense attorneys for the five officers charged with Tyree Nichols' death requested the delay. The U.S. Director of National Intelligence says the intelligence community remains divided over whether the coronavirus began in a lab or in nature. Here's NPR's Jeff Brumfield. Speaking before the Senate Intelligence Committee, Avril Haines said that the agencies she helps oversee remain split. Four believe the virus started in nature, while two, the Department of Energy and FBI, favor a leak from a laboratory. On top of that, those two agencies have different reasons for their conclusions. It is a really challenging issue, and I think our folks honestly are trying to do the best that they can to figure out what exactly happened based on the information they have available to them. A separate hearing in the House of Representatives also probed the origins of COVID. One thing lawmakers on both sides of the aisle agree on, the Chinese government is not being open, and that's making it difficult to establish how the pandemic began. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News, Washington. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell says the central bank has not decided its next steps for combating stubbornly high inflation, but he cautioned today. If, and I stress that no decision has been made on this, but if the totality of the data were to indicate that faster tightening is warranted, we'd be prepared to increase the pace of rate hikes. Powell told members of a House committee today that what he shared with members of the Senate yesterday, more aggressive interest rate hikes possible. Meanwhile, U.S. job openings at the start of the year declined by 410,000 to 10.8 million, but they remain historically elevated. Figures for the month before were revised slightly higher to reflect 11.2 million job openings in the final month of 2022. The data coming out of 
the government today. The Dow is down 57 points. It's NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A step forward for rent control in Boston. Today, the Boston City Council has approved Mayor Michelle Wu's proposal to cap yearly rent increases at 10 percent, but it would exempt triple-deckers, small owner-occupied units, and new buildings. WBUR's Yasmin Amr has more. The measure passed by an 11-2 vote. The council also rejected an amendment proposed by Councillor Michael Flaherty, which would have exempted landlords with six or fewer units. Councillor Ricardo Arroyo was among those voting yes. He said he doesn't think the measure goes far enough, but that it's necessary. This is a monumental act for the city of Boston. I commend the mayor for moving forward with a rent stabilization plan to address what has been and is an ongoing, long-standing issue of price gouging and rent gouging and displacement. The proposal has to be approved by the state legislature and the governor before it can go into effect. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey is voluntarily recognizing his staff's effort to unionize. That'll make his team the first U.S. Senate office to organize. The union representing the workers says 100 percent of Markey's staffers support the union effort. In a tweet today, Markey calls the organizing effort a fundamental exercise in democracy. The COVID vaccine mandate that's been in place at all 15 Massachusetts community colleges is being lifted. The presidents of the schools have issued joint statements on the change. It says COVID vaccine requirements for most students and employees will end after the spring semester. Certain groups of students and employees may still be required to be vaccinated as a condition of clinical placements. The colleges say the policy shift is due in part to the changing public health landscape around COVID. And highway traffic in the state has nearly returned to pre-pandemic levels. The state Department of Transportation says it collected about $216 million from drivers on state toll roads between July and December of last year. That's only $5 million less than the same period in 2019. The department expects this year's toll collections will come in at 99 percent of pre-pandemic levels. 46 degrees, a nice remainder of the day today. Cloudy overnight tonight, lows about freezing. Clouds should stick around tomorrow, highs in the mid-40s. Sun returns on Friday with highs in the upper 40s. Again, 46 degrees now at 4.06. WBUR supporters include the Lone Star Foundation, inspired by the maxim that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Five top national security officials testified today before the Senate Intelligence Committee in an annual event that assesses worldwide threats. They hammered home two key points. Russia is the most immediate concern, and China poses the major long-term challenge. NPR national security correspondent Greg Myrie is here to break it down for us. Hey, Greg. Hi, Elsa. Hi. Okay, so let's start with Russia. According to the testimony today, what should we be looking for next in Russia's war in Ukraine? Well, the intelligence chief said both sides, Russia and Ukraine, are both being worn down by this heavy fighting that's more than a year old. They could both face shortages of fresh troops and ammunition this year. Russia has been waging a new offensive in eastern Ukraine for the past month. Ukraine is widely expected to carry out its own offensive soon. But battlefield movements are often being measured by 100 yards here, a few hundred yards there. Neither side appears poised for a big advance. 
Here's Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, speaking about Russian leader Vladimir Putin. In short, we do not foresee the Russian military recovering enough this year to make major territorial gains, but Putin most likely calculates that time works in his favor. So the national security community is just not expecting a quick end to this war. Okay. Well, a year ago, the U.S. intelligence community was widely praised for going public with information on Russia's plans to invade Ukraine. And I'm curious, what was the tone like this year? So it was a mostly cordial hearing, but there was some criticism that the international, uh, sorry, the intelligence community hasn't solved some mysteries. Mm -hmm. Now, one example is a report that was produced just last week into the prolonged illnesses suffered by U.S. intelligence officers and diplomats and soldiers overseas, the so-called Havana syndrome. But the report didn't offer a clear explanation. Uh, it said that there was no evidence a foreign government was responsible, and the ailments were most likely a result of existing medical conditions. And this just didn't sit well with uh, New York Democratic Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. It essentially says is there's no external cause, which I think is really problematic. I find it unacceptable that we are not continuing diligent analysis of possible causes. Okay, let's turn to China, Greg, because the U.S. and China obviously have many points of friction at this moment. What concerns did the intelligence officials today lean into most? Well, they raised several. I'll mention two. One is President Xi Jinping. The other is technology. Now, President Xi is using increasingly strident language when he talks about the U.S., including remarks just this week where he said the U.S. is using, quote, containment, encirclement, and suppression to limit China. He's blaming the U.S. Uh, for economic problems uh, facing China and, and talks in very aggressive tones when he mentions the military. Of of course, the big concern here is a possible Chinese move on Taiwan. Right. Okay. And real quick, you mentioned technology. What was the message there? Well, uh, the short answer is TikTok. The senators and national security officials pointed to the wildly popular social media company owned by China. Mm -hmm. uh, they say that, that the Chinese government could get access to the data. And Chris Ray, the FBI director, said, quote, this just screams out with national security concerns. That is NPR's Greg Myrie. Thank you, Greg. My pleasure. In Tbilisi, Georgia today, thousands of demonstrators were chanting outside the parliament building, and police responded with water cannons and pepper spray. There are a lot of people right now in front of uh, the parliament of Georgia and New Savali Avenues. Uh, a lot of political parties, opposition, uh, students, NGOs, civil society, and just ordinary a Georgian citizen. That's Georgian member of parliament Khatia Dekanoidze, who we reached earlier today. The demonstrators are fighting proposed legislation that would force media and NGOs to register as foreign agents. Demonstrators see it as another shift towards Russian-style authoritarianism in a country that, like Ukraine, has been through its own invasion and occupation by Russian forces. Conceptually, it's Russian law. Putin adopted this kind of law in 2012. Uh, and gradually killing civil society and NGOs. Journalist Robin Forstier-Walker is covering the story from Tbilisi. Welcome to All Things Considered. Pleasure to speak to you. Tell me what you've been seeing out there the last few days. Yesterday was particularly shocking. Uh, we saw Molotov cocktails being thrown into ranks of police uh, that were in body armor. And we saw the police 
callously using pepper spray to squirt in the faces of protesters that were standing right in front of them peacefully. And we saw people suffering from the effects of tear gas and water cannon. And we see that determination in people's faces. We see very angry um, young Georgians, but Georgians of different generations too, coming out to say, look, this is not in Georgia's interests, it's not in our interests. And they're concerned that the European Union has basically said that this is no way going to serve Georgia's interests in being accepted for candidate status of the European Union. This is not the first protest in recent months or even years outside Georgia's parliament, but does what you're seeing this week feel different? Well, it's really looking like a very large numbers are back out on the streets. This government is unpopular with a large part of society that believes it's taking the country away from its European aspirations. But this one feels different just because of the indignation and outrage at the way the government has tried to force through these laws, because the law looks eerily similar to the one that uh, Russia introduced 10 years ago and targets civil society and the media and will have a very chilling effect on those groups, those organizations that do really hard work here to try to raise the level of Georgia's democratic status. Georgia's president opposes the law and says that she would veto it if it passes. What does that mean? Well, she promised to do so, but she is a bit of a figurehead, uh, really, in terms of her abilities. She can veto, but the government can have its own vote in parliament to turn that veto around. You know, in 2014 in Ukraine, there was also this push-pull between a pro-Russia and a pro-Europe movement. Do you see similarities to the point that Georgia could have a revolution along the same lines as the Euromaidan protest uh, that drove out the Ukrainian government in 2014? I do see some similarities. It does look reminiscent of what I personally saw back in 2014 in Kiev during that period. Because I sense that the outrage is genuine. It isn't just about an opposition uh, a political party or group of parties that are, are trying to unite their own supporters. I see ordinary young Georgians, especially uh, Western educated or English speaking. And there is a very large percentage of this population who are pro-European. Somewhere around 80% want to be part of Europe. And they are genuinely aggrieved to see their government introducing Russian-style laws to muzzle free speech, to muzzle alternative opinions, and to basically really take control of this country in an authoritarian way. So if there is that groundswell, if it really exists, and people really are angry enough, it wouldn't surprise me if this movement was able to continue its momentum. But at the same time, this government has been extremely capable at manipulating another part of society that is very worried about uh, a Georgia becoming too pro-Western and endangering this country, somehow dragging it into another front in this war with Russia. And it'd be interesting to see whether the government is able to extract itself out of this situation now. But at the same time, I, I get a sense that a lot of Georgians really say enough is enough, that this law goes one step too far. Journalist Robin Forrestier-Walker reporting from Tbilisi, Georgia, on the protests happening there this week. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Today, we remember Joseph Zucchero, the late owner of Mr. Beef. Mr. Beef is a Chicago restaurant known for a signature Chicago sandwich. That sandwich became popular around the country last summer thanks to the TV show The Bear. 
25 pounds? No, 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 I ordered 200. Where is beef? You still got that meat connect? The sandwich is called the Italian beef. It came from Italian immigrants in the early 20th century who could only buy less tender cuts of the cow. Chicago historian Sherman Thomas, who goes by Dilla, told NPR last year those cooks had to get creative. Those same ladies discovered that if you, you cook that in its own juices over a longer period of time, right, it's, it's going to be super tender, right? It's strictly our root food. It really is our food here in Chicago, as opposed to the Philly cheesesteak or a New York, um, I don't even know if they have a meat type of sandwich in New York. I don't think so. I think it's just Sabret's hot dogs. That's Joseph Zucchero's son, Chris, speaking to host Tony Sarabia on WBEZ's The Morning Shift. He says there are some crucial components to an Italian beef. Slow-cooked slivers of beef, an Italian relish called giardiniera, good bread, but it also comes in all sorts of textures. There's a whole lexicon for every from Italian beef. You know, you can have it dry, then you can have it dipped where you take the beef, put it on the bread and kind of immerse it into Whoa. the gravy. And then you can have it super wet or extra juicy, which is when you take tongs and you stick it and you yeah. do the Dip same it. thing and then you just submerge it into the gravy. Joe Zucchero and his brother started Mr. Beef more than 40 years ago, long enough to develop some famous and loyal customers. When he was an emerging stand-up comedian, Jay Leno would sleep in his car in the parking lot. He talked about it with fellow Tonight Show host Jimmy Fallon. Oh, that's my favorite joint. That's right. So I walk in, there's like a hundred pictures of you there. We go way back. It's a, it's a very funny place. There's no tables. That you, it's just a joint. Yeah. But it's, it's the best beef sandwich. It's if you delicious. Like Last year, Joe Zucchero told NPR the bear drove a resurgence in business. Mr. Beef inspired that show. And when a TV crew took Joe to see the set they created based on the restaurant he'd started with his brother, that, he said, was priceless. They built this inside a building. And they took me to it. They wanted me to see it, and my mouth dropped. I was like, oh, my God. Joseph Zucchero was 69 years old. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, the third international summit on genome editing concludes in London after scientists, ethicists, and activists grapple with fresh issues raised by powerful new gene editing techniques. That story and much more are still ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. It was a mixed bag for Wall Street today. The Dow lost two-tenths of a percent, 58 points, to close at 32,798. S&P picked up 0.14 percent to close at 3,992. The Nasdaq picked up four-tenths of a percent. It ended the day at 11,576. Massachusetts restaurants want the state to let them keep offering takeout cocktails. The state allowed people to order takeout alcohol during the pandemic as a way to help keep businesses stay afloat, but the law permitting it expires in April. The Massachusetts Restaurant Association is asking the Senate to include to-go cocktails on its outdoor dining measure. The Senate takes it up tomorrow. It's 419. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning coaching, and yoga. Semesteroff.com. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. 
46 degrees now in the Boston area, a beautiful late afternoon. Overnight tonight, a lot of clouds around, temperatures just about 32 degrees. And then for tomorrow, overcast once again with highs in the mid-40s, maybe a few shots of sunshine. And then the sun in full for Friday, highs in the upper 40s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies, from nonprofits to the Fortune 500, find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Another heavy storm system is bearing down on the West Coast, threatening more flooding, landslides, and other hazards. It's known as an atmospheric river, just like the damaging storms that soaked California earlier this year. It's the kind of extreme weather event that we're likely to see more of in a changing climate. And for lessons in how to adapt to this new reality, we looked to Sitka, Alaska, which had its own encounter with the weather phenomenon. In 2015, an intense atmospheric river triggered a series of landslides. Sitka chose to respond with science. Emily Kwong and Aaron Scott, the hosts of NPR's daily science podcast, Shortwave, have this story. Sitka's on an island on the edge of the Pacific Ocean in the Tongass National Forest. It's beautiful there, and it rains a lot, over 100 inches a year. We have beautiful rivers with salmon, and the salmon need rain. Our ecosystems need a lot of rain. This is Lisa Bush, executive director of the Sitka Sound Science Center. And Lisa never feared the rain before, but the morning of August 18th, 2015, was different. I remember my pants getting wet, like all the way up to my knees, just walking from my car to the airport. So I remember thinking, this is a lot of rain, a lot of rain. Rivers in town began to rise, and the land started to slide. Forty landslides were documented on Baranoff and Chichikov Islands that day. A slope above a subdivision of new homes under construction gave way. This landslide, the Kramer Avenue landslide, demolished a building and took the lives of three Sitkins, brothers Elmer and Ulysses Diaz and Sitka's building inspector, William Stortz. For days, Sitkins were shoveling debris, cooking casseroles, keeping vigil with the families of those lost and coordinating shelters for those evacuated. I can stay with a friend, so my whole house is open. Charteris has room. Pets and kids. These are locals reading Facebook posts written at the time. My home is very small, but I can offer food, blankets. Dios esté con todos ustedes. Me uno a su dolor desde acá en México. The thing for Lisa at the Sika Sound Science Center to do was to get answers. Mm-hmm. Why did this happen? Why did this rain tip the scale the way it did? And how do you stop a tragedy like this from ever happening again? Yeah, I mean, those are huge questions. Who do you call for something like that? You call scientists. <laughs> of course you do. I mean, Lisa dialed everyone. NASA, the National Forest Service, the National Park Service, the U.S. Geological Survey. They responded so quickly, yes, how can we help you with our expertise? And all of their expertise, after years of work, led to an early warning system for landslides in Sitka. 
a system that's constantly updating based on the weather, and anyone can access the dashboard by typing sitkalandslide.org. Okay, so I'm looking at a clean page. There's a green check mark that says the current risk of landslide is low, and the 24-hour forecast is also low. So this is reassuring. Mm-hmm. It kind of works like a traffic light system. Right, right, right. And you saw for yourself, it's really simple to look at. But developing a system that's both science-backed and user-friendly took seven years. <laughs> a $2.1 million grant from the National Science Foundation and the involvement of an entire town. So if you're surrounded by these hillsides, how do you know which ones are at risk of sliding? This is the where piece of the puzzle. Where do landslides happen? I'm going to let Jason Schmidt, a local geologist, show us that. Hey, Emily. I'm here in the field, and I'm at the headscarp, so it's the place where it all started. A debris flow, that's the type of landslide we're talking about here. Okay. It happens when you get a lot of water in the system. Water that travels down through gravity and transforms layers of earth into a slurry of mud, water, and other debris, taking on the consistency of wet cement. It can move up to 25 miles per hour, giving you very little time to get out of the way. And so this is what happened on Kramer Avenue in 2015? It is. Okay. And geology tells us that new landslides are likely to form in the footprint of these old landslides which is telling. So when Sitka's Geotask Force started discussing that, the Forest Service, Lisa says, was like, hold on. We have a landslide inventory that we've been keeping track of for the last 50 years in the area. Would that be helpful? And we were all like, what? Historical data, yes. (laughs) Hello, we didn't even know that they were doing that. I love it when discovering a database is like discovering hidden treasure. Yes, and that trove of data wound up in the hands of Annette Patton, a postdoc at the University of Oregon and now lead geologist on this project. So with a sense of how slopes have failed before, Annette, along with Josh Roaring at the University of Oregon, wanted to know what amount of rain tips the balance. So, like, do certain amounts of rainfall predictably lead to landslide risk? Something like that, yeah. Like, if it rains really hard for an hour, is that what triggers a landslide? We didn't know for sure exactly what time scale of heavy rainfall would trigger a landslide. So that's where we wanted to start. So Annette combined this landslide inventory that the Forest Service happened to have with Sitka's rain record, 20 years of data gathered at the airport. She started to see a pattern. Hmm. Five of the most catastrophic landslides in the last decade, ones that blocked roads, destroyed human life and property, they all saw a certain amount of rain in a three-hour interval. Ooh, so how much? How much rain? It's not an absolute because the model is more designed to calculate probability. So a high-risk probability warning is triggered around 1.3 inches of rain in a three-hour interval. And along the way to creating this early warning system, the Science Center consulted the community as much as possible. Sika Tribe of Alaska contributed traditional knowledge about landslides and human movement. That's on the dashboard. And to make sure the warning system actually reaches everyone in town, the Science Center decided to map the social networks. Robert Lempert led this part. He's a senior scientist at the RAND Corporation and hosted all of these co-designed workshops. We um, ran a game, an exercise, where we asked everybody in the room, and there's about 20 people or so, to fill out a little form and say whom in the room would they take shopping for clothes to get good advice on, you know, what to buy. And certain names kept coming up again and again. 50 people who should know about the landslide early warning system. And this idea that you've got 
individuals who have worked through the process, who now, you know, trust this body of information, trust each other. This kind of collaboration, it's only becoming more important, right? I mean, these landslides, they're connected to climate change. Southeast Alaska is going to see more extreme rainfall. Yeah, I mean, a lot of places are going to see more rainfall, um, which raises the question, are other communities taking note of this project? Yes, yes. Communities who also worry about landslides and other things, which is why the Science Center hopes to bring this predictive modeling to six other rural and tribal communities in southeast Alaska. Oh, great. The NSF-funded project, which is called Kutte, which is the Slingit word for weather, hopes to create a regional system for warning people about flooding, avalanches, and landslides. These natural hazards can't be stopped, at least not yet, but Lisa Bush says people can learn to live with them. It's heartening to see a community adapt and move on. Yes, we have to live among landslides. We have to live in a changed world. And that's not easy, but it's heartening when people do it. Especially, Erin, I think at the local level, to keep people safe. I can't think of a better use for science. That was Emily Kwong and Erin Scott from NPR's daily science podcast, Shortwave. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up in about 20 minutes, thousands of undocumented farm workers in California are reaching retirement age, but some need to continue to work because they don't have retirement benefits such as Social Security. In the forecast, there's an off chance of flurries or light rain early tonight, but a good chance of clouds around, overcast skies with temperatures just about 31 degrees, still on the windy side overnight tonight. And for tomorrow, the clouds once again, some gusty winds blowing about as warm as today has been, just in the mid-40s. And then finally, on Friday, lots of sunshine still in the mid-40s. Could be back to the clouds, though, on Saturday. 45 degrees now in the Boston area. The time is 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. In Florida, Kansas, and Pennsylvania, high school productions of Broadway shows have been canceled after parents and school officials complain about content. In Ohio, students pushed back, then Broadway took notice. And we were all like, yes, let's fight it, let's do it. We love this show. We think it's a really good show and something worth putting on. Don't mess with the theater kids. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. China's government could use TikTok to access data on millions of American users. That's what FBI Director Christopher Wray told a Senate intelligence hearing on worldwide threats today on Capitol Hill. Wray says the Chinese-owned video app, quote, screams of security concerns. Here's Republican Senator Marco Rubio questioning Wray on the possible threats posed by the social media company that reaches over 138 million active users in the U.S. and more than a billion worldwide. Could they use TikTok to control data on millions of users? Uh, Yes. Could they use it to control the software on millions of devices given the opportunity to do so? Yes. The White House is backing legislation by a dozen senators to give the federal government new powers to ban TikTok and other foreign-based technologies if... They pose national security threats. The mother of a Russian warlord has won an appeal to remove her from a European Union sanctions list as 
NPR's Jackie Northam tells us she claimed she shouldn't be sanctioned just because of a family relationship. Violeta Pogosina was sanctioned by the EU one day before the war in Ukraine started just over a year ago because of her business links with her son, Yevgeny Pogosian. He's a close ally with Russian President Vladimir Putin and head of the Wagner mercenary group fighting in Ukraine. The group has been accused of human rights abuses and torture. The 83-year-old Violetta appealed the sanctions ruling, saying the EU failed to show she was complicit in her son's actions and was targeted solely on their family relationship. The EU court agreed, although the decision could be appealed by the European bloc's top court. Jackie Northam, NPR News. Stocks finished mixed on Wall Street today following yesterday's big sell-off. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Today, the Boston City Council has approved two high-profile measures supported by Boston Mayor Michelle Wu. The council voted 11-2 to to reform the Boston Planning and Development Agency. The goal is to overhaul how the city handles development projects and to end some of the city's urban renewal powers. Councilors also approved the mayor's rent control plan by an identical 11-2 to vote. That measure would tie annual rent increases in the city to the rate of inflation and limit them to a maximum of 10 percent. It would exempt some properties from the rules. Both measures need approval from state lawmakers and the governor before they take effect. State Representative David Linsky has refiled a bill to regulate so-called ghost guns. The guns are built from kits. They have no registration numbers and cannot be traced. Massachusetts State Police say they've seized multiple ghost guns in the past month. Linsky says his bill would make everyone safer. What is happening right now is that people are able to purchase kits and put together their own guns at home without going through any kind of background check or licensing process. And that is a significant public safety problem. Linsky's bill would require that registration numbers be attached to guns built at home. He says it would also outlaw the use or transmission of computer codes to build guns on a 3D printer. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell has joined a multi-state coalition challenging the popular social media app TikTok. The group of attorneys general is asking a Tennessee court to make the company preserve and hand over internal company documents. Authorities in Tennessee are investigating the app's impact on young people's mental health. The brief filed in court cites TikTok's addictive features, including its endless scrolling and its algorithm. The company recently said it would set a screen time limit for teenage users and help them be more intentional about how they're spending their time online. It's now 4.34 and the forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Tanglewood and the Boston Symphony Orchestra. A trip to Tanglewood this summer opens a world of possibilities. Tickets on sale at bso.org Tanglewood. Got a lovely late afternoon going overnight tonight. Lots of clouds piling in, maybe a few rain or snow showers. Down around freezing overnight, still windy tonight and tomorrow as well. Clouds in for another day tomorrow. The high should be in the mid-40s. And then Friday should bring bright weather for a change. Sunny skies with highs in the mid-40s yet again. This is 90.9 WBUR, 45 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits, at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina, or from all agents. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business, with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere, 
at uma.com NPR. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. It's still far too premature to use powerful new technologies to edit genes that can be passed down from parents to their children. That's according to organizers of the Third International Summit on Human Genome Editing, which concluded today in London. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein attended and joins us now. Rob, tell us about what happened at the summit and why it's important. Yes, yeah, so Ari, it's the first time in five years that researchers, doctors, bioethicists from around the world have come together to debate the big questions being raised by new technologies that are letting scientists manipulate DNA in ways once thought unimaginable. At the last summit, a Chinese scientist shocked the world by announcing that he'd used gene editing to create the first genetically modified babies, twin girls he had made from gene-edited embryos. That was denounced for many reasons, including that no one knew if it was safe. And that stunner kind of hung over this meeting like a huge shadow. Here's how Linda Partridge from the Royal Society put it on the opening day. While the potential benefits of the technology are clear, so also is the potential for it to be misused. The fear is that someone could, you know, make a mistake and sort of mess up the human gene pool for generations and open the door to all kinds of dystopian fears about designer babies. So how did, how did the summit address those fears? Well, first of all, scientists presented the results of their latest experiments, and it became clear that they've quietly made big strides in the last five years honing their gene editing skills. On the one hand, they've discovered new evidence about just how unsafe it would be to try to make new gene-edited babies. The editing can simply make too many mistakes, but they've also made progress towards finding more precise ways to edit genes in human embryos, eggs, and sperm. And there was a pretty intense debate today about the ethical pros and cons of someday doing that to potentially do things like eradicate thousands of terrible genetic diseases that have plagued families for generations or help infertile couples have genetically related children. And there was also a lot of talk about how doctors are starting to treat diseases in people who have already been born. Hmm. Tell us more about that. What kind of diseases? Yeah, so there's lots of progress using gene editing to treat diseases ranging from rare genetic ailments to more common illnesses like cancer and heart disease. In fact, the first gene editing treatment could get approved this year to treat sickle cell disease. But that's also raising concerns that the treatment's too complicated and could be too expensive to get it to everyone who needs it. In the end, what did the organizers say about all of this? Well, first of all, they stress that making gene editing therapies widely available must be a top priority. And second of all, they warned that it remains far too early to make any more genetically modified babies. Here's Robin Lovell Badge from the Francis Crick Institute who led the summit. Heritable human genome editing should not be used unless, at a minimum, it meets reasonable standards for safety and efficacy, is legally sanctioned, and has been developed and tested under a system of rigorous oversight but is subject to responsible governance. At this time, these conditions have not been met. Hmm. Well, so what did you hear from people at the meeting after all that? Well, most of the attendees agreed with that statement, but some critics say it fell kind of short. Here's William Herbert, a bioethicist at Arizona State University. We all know you see a yellow light and sometimes you slow down and hit the brake and sometimes you hit the gas. And I think here we're hitting the gas. 
Herbert and others worry that there's been a kind of a troubling shift in the debate from the big questions swirling around whether genetic modifications that can be passed on for generations should ever be done to simply laying out the technical steps necessary to do it safely. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein reporting from London there. Thanks, Rob. You bet, Ari. You would have thought Beyonce just entered the room at a White House event last week. The actual guest of honor, Julie Sue, President Biden's nominee to be the next U.S. Labor Secretary. News of her nomination brought an outpouring of support from labor unions and Democratic lawmakers, particularly Asian Americans. But that doesn't mean she'll have an easy time getting Senate confirmation. NPR's Mary Yang has more. The 54-year-old mother of two, daughter of Chinese immigrants, stood in front of a room packed with members of Congress, cabinet officials, and union leaders. 60 years ago, my mom came to the United States on a cargo ship because she couldn't afford a passenger ticket. Recently, she got a call from the president of the United States telling her that her daughter was going to be nominated to be U.S. Labor Secretary. Asian American Democrats and other lawmakers have been pushing Biden since he took office to name Julie Su the country's top labor official. But in 2021, he went with former Boston Mayor Marty Walsh and named Sue his deputy. Now that Walsh is leaving to lead the NHL Players Union, those lawmakers could see their first pick through. I believe in the transformative power of America, and I know the transformative power of a good job. If confirmed, she will be the first Asian American member of Biden's cabinet at the secretary level. Sue supporters say that there's really no better person for the job. The heart of her career has been promoting the rights of immigrant and low-wage workers, many from Asian-American and Hispanic communities. Julie just cares a lot about individual people. That's Eileen Louie, who worked with Sue at what was then called the Asian Pacific American Legal Center. Sue was fresh out of Harvard Law when she led a landmark case. Her team won more than $4 million of stolen wages for Thai garment workers who'd been trafficked by a California sweatshop. There were like these huge meetings with multiple translators and small groups where the workers could really engage and try to understand what was happening. That case set a big precedent. Not only are sweatshops liable for violating workers' rights, even the fashion labels are on the hook. After that, Sue won a MacArthur Genius Grant and continued representing people in vulnerable situations. Now she's poised to be the most powerful voice on labor issues in this country. But it's not going to come without a fight. She was narrowly confirmed by the Senate as deputy with just 50 yeses, none from Republicans. The biggest holdup was over unemployment fraud. Sue was California's labor secretary during the pandemic when the state paid out billions in fake unemployment insurance claims. These fraudulent payments are incredible. $21,000 payment to our colleague, Senator Dianne Feinstein. $800 million worth of payments that were went to prison inmates. That's Senator Susan Collins of Maine, a Republican. In total, the fraud cost California at least $11.4 billion. Sue, for her part, said that the pandemic short-circuited an already failing system. You know, when the pandemic hit, unemployment insurance funding was at a 50-year low nationwide, along with technological challenges or failure to invest in technology. The fraud um, really created, again, like a perfect storm um, of challenges. 
Sue's also drawn some fire in the gig economy. She supported a controversial law, again in California, that classifies some contract workers as employees. That increased costs for some companies that had to give more people pay time off and benefits. It's currently tied up in a long legal battle that's still in state courts. The Senate has yet to set a date for Sue's confirmation hearing. Mary Yang, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. A growing number of undocumented workers are reaching retirement age but can't afford to stop working because they won't be able to get payments from Social Security even if they've been paying into the fund. A new state bill in California might help some of these workers retire. From member station KQED, Farida Jabval-Romero reports. As an orphan kid in rural Mexico... Abraham Salazar says he started working at age 10, helping to plow fields and grow corn and beans. When he moved to California more than three decades ago, he began working at vineyards. Sitting in his studio apartment in Sonoma County, the 63-year-old says that after years of cleaning, pruning, and harvesting fields by hand, his wrists are becoming arthritic and his lower back hurts. Over the years, Salazar has paid automatic payroll taxes into Social Security. But like millions of other undocumented workers, he typically used a number that wasn't his own. That means that Salazar will never get Social Security benefits. Unauthorized workers contributed roughly $13 billion to that fund in a single year, according to the Social Security Administration's most recent estimates. At a rally earlier this month in Sacramento, immigrant advocates called for the passage of a bill that would allow undocumented immigrants aged 65 and older to get monthly state-funded payments of about $1,100 to help them retire. So that they can age with dignity and justice. Angelica Salas directs the Coalition for Humane Immigrant Rights in Los Angeles. She says workers like Salazar, who've given their most productive years to this country, are being treated as disposable. They worked hard um, in some of the hardest and most backbreaking jobs in this country. They contributed, and now um, they're completely locked out of any benefits as they reach um, their golden years. The last federal amnesty for undocumented immigrants passed in 1986. Today, there are nearly 700,000 workers like Salazar who came to the U.S. in the years after eligibility, and they're close to or past retirement age now. More than 160,000 live in California. Those estimates come from the Community and Labor Center at the University of California, Merced. Professor Edward Flores co-directs the center. He says a demographic wave is coming. What do you do with a, a significant proportion of our workforce who has been laboring for decades without access to a social and economic safety net, but now that they're aging and now that they may not be able to work, you know, will be in a much more vulnerable position. Back at his apartment, Abraham Salazar is rushing off to another job. 
He says a regular stipend, like what the state bill proposes, would be a huge help to reach his dream of retiring. Salazar recently launched a landscaping business. He hopes that working for himself will help him to make enough money to save for retirement. For NPR News, I'm Farida Javala Romero in Sonoma County, California. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, politics and the debate over the origins of the coronavirus pandemic. That's coming up in about 15 minutes. If you're used to watching TV when and how you want, well, you can now do the same thing with radio. You can pause and rewind live radio with a new WBUR app. Download it at the App Store. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Into the Woods. Coming to Boston direct from Broadway and with its Broadway stars to boot, Two weeks only, beginning March 21st. Tickets at emersoncolonialtheater.com. In sports, Red Sox play an exhibition game tonight against Puerto Rico's ball club. It's a tune-up game for Puerto Rico as it prepares for the World Baseball Classic. The tournament that attracts teams from around the globe is now underway. Puerto Rico plays on Saturday. If you're longing for the boys of summer up here, just remember it's 22 days to opening day for the Red Sox. And Celtics have lost their last three games. They hope to end the streak there as they host the Portland Trailblazers at the Garden tonight. 7.30 start time. The Bruins are off. In the forecast, lots of clouds tonight. Lows about freezing. Tomorrow, clouds return with highs in the mid-40s. Sunshine finally on Friday with highs in the upper 40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, the words in our favorite books never change. The words on our e-readers can't. Writing used to be set in stone, literally and figuratively, but digital copyright holders can change the content of that favorite book if it's on, say, your iPad. The Boston Globe's Hiawatha Bray explains. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Every year in Pakistan, women march on International Women's Day to demand equal rights. But their slogans like, my body, my choice, are red meat for conservatives who see the protesters as un-Islamic. And so there are always counter-protests by other women. NPR's Dia Hadid met demonstrators from both sides in Islamabad. Police try to prevent the Women's Day march in Islamabad. They block roads leading to the march. They fling up a cordon around the spot where protesters try to gather. So protesters burst through. As they gather, they clap to music. They chant, women have woken up. One protester is Fatma. She only gives her first name for fear of reprisal. She's 19, says she doesn't feel safe on the streets here. 
I do not want to be catcalled. I do not want to be harassed. I want to live and have a literal normal walk in this city, in this country. Trans woman Dua Ali says she's at the Women's Day March to demand safety. She says she works as a dancer and she's vulnerable to beatings, rape and even murder. At today's protest, there's also a group of Afghan women. They fled neighboring Afghanistan and they're grieving for their sisters back home who live under the Taliban's rule. Wesa Saadi is a former civil servant. I can't accept this situation for Afghan women. Afghans can't, can't have education, can't go to uh, universities. The world is just looking to us. We are women and we have rights. Later, the protesters try to march down the street, but they're not welcome. One officer fights with the women. The police beat the women with sticks. But it's not just the police opposed to the Women's Day marches. Half a mile down the road, there's a demonstration against Women's Day. It's a reminder that the demand for equality remains divisive in Pakistan. Dozens of women are at the counter-protest held by a powerful religious group. One of them is Shanza Khurshid. She's 20, wears a face foul. She says Islam has already given women all the rights they need. She says protesters at the Women's Day March have no honor. They're shameless. They're westernized. Then news erupts of more protests. These are tumultuous times in Pakistan. The protests are called by the former Prime Minister Imran Khan, who's demanding elections, but the current government refuses to go to the polls. The police crack down on those protests too, and Pakistan ends March the 8th as divided as it began. Dear Hadid, NPR News, Islamabad. Last week, Betsy Julian took her 5th and 6th graders on an unusual field trip not too far from their school in Hopkins, Minnesota, to a playground manufacturing plant, so her students could see blueprints for the very playground coming to their school, Glen Lake Elementary. It's not just any playground. See, Ms. Julian's class wanted all their classmates, including the ones with disabilities, to be able to play at recess. Now they're on their way to making that dream come true. NPR's Janaki Mehta has more. Ms. Julian's classroom looks out over a playground at Glen Lake Elementary. One day, as she was eating her lunch, she watched the kids play outside. I had this perfect view of fifth grade, sixth grade, and kindergarten playing out at recess, and three of our students used that time for recess that are in wheelchairs. None of them could use the playground equipment, which hit home because her own son is a third grader at Glen Lake, and he uses a wheelchair too. So I think this like dream and passion of being able to have an accessible piece of equipment has been forming for a long time. And it just became really, really apparent this year that our playground is not set up for everybody in the school to play and have fun. So in the fall, Ms. Julian and some fellow teachers at her school applied for a grant to get an accessible swing and merry-go-round for their playground. They only got a portion of the money they needed. So I announced to my class, would you guys be willing to help me try and raise the rest of the $35,000? And they immediately were like, we were like, why can't we just make the whole playground accessible? And it was 
$300,000, which is a lot, but we knew we could do it. That's Hadley Mangan, one of the sixth graders in Ms. Julian's class. The next morning, Ms. Julian published a fundraiser online, and the kids got to work. We've done, like, cold calling where we call different businesses. You have to, like, write a script and see if they wanted to donate to us and stuff. We've gone door knocking. We've done a lot. Kaylee Brace, Rakia Haji, Hadley Mangan, and their classmates raised more than $10,000 overnight. And the money kept pouring in. The students had a bake sale, neighborhood restaurants through fundraisers. A private donor even cut a check for $200,000. So they upped their goal twice. Now they're well on their way to raising a million dollars to transform their entire upper playground. And Haji says any money they raise beyond that goal? We decided to keep on going to make a playground for other schools. Because if they see us doing this, they're going to want a playground too. And so it was on a recent Friday that Ms. Julian and Glen Lake principal Jeffrey Dull revved up their bus engines to take the students on that field trip to the playground manufacturing plant. We went to different buildings there and we got to see like how they make the equipment. See if you can peek inside the window there. Yeah, it was exciting to know how our playground's gonna look like. Hadley and Kaylee also say they're looking forward to riding the accessible zip line and roller slide coming to campus. Rakia is most excited for. Probably the merry-go-round because when it spins, it's like really cool. I felt amazed. Like, it's crazy how a thought can become a reality so quickly. Fellow Glen Lake fifth grader John Butner went on the field trip too. He's not in Miss Julian's class, but as a wheelchair user, he's been an outspoken ambassador for the project. Ever since I came here as a kindergartner, I thought I was going to have a tough time, but now knowing that I'm going to have something to do at recess and that all of this equipment is big enough for my friends and I, I just feel this sense of capability. John says this project is about more than students like him in a wheelchair. The playground is friendly to kids with all kinds of abilities. And the fact that I know now that this is happening, that this is possible, I just feel this emotion that I cannot describe. It's sort of like sadness, but also happiness. That first swing and merry-go-round that Betsy Julian dreamt up arrives this summer. And the rest of the equipment will be there next spring. Even though this class will have moved on to junior high by then, they all plan to visit and play. And that's something that gives Miss Julian that happy, sad feeling, too. It's just as a teacher, my heart just swells with pride. But as a parent of a child that has special needs, that's your hope, right? That the world's kind. Janaki Mehta, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Investments. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of z Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at z and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from listeners like you who donate 
to this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. This traffic note, people driving on I-95 between Attleboro and Canton can expect delays through the end of the year. The Transportation Department is installing new highway signs starting today. Daytime work Monday through Friday will happen between 7 a.m. and 3.30 p.m. Nighttime work Sunday through Thursday is from 8 p.m. to 5 a.m. All installation is expected to be complete by December. It's 4.59. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. There's still questions about how the COVID-19 pandemic began. The House Republican-led House is attempting to shed new light on the matter, but that's not without political debate. Discovering the origins is vital. It matters for the future of the world. And we aren't finished. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Why that's stirring up debate coming up. Also, the Justice Department says Louisville Metro Police routinely violated civil rights, conducted unlawful searches, and discriminated against black people and people with behavioral health disabilities. To help with California's housing crisis, the state is letting developers circumvent local regulations, and more than a million Americans cross into Mexico every year to have medical procedures. Most people feel that there's not much quality differences between a dentist, say, you know, south of the border and north of the border. Medical tourism in Mexico coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The nation's top security officials went before a Senate panel today and offered their assessment of the most serious threats facing the U.S., As NPR's Greg Myrie explains, Russia and China received most of the attention. The national security chiefs told the Senate Intelligence Committee that Russia and Ukraine could both face shortages of fresh troops and ammunition this year. Here's Director of National Intelligence Avril Haines speaking about Russian leader Vladimir Putin. We do not foresee the Russian military recovering enough this year to make major territorial gains, but Putin most likely calculates that time works in his favor. On China, Haynes noted the increasingly confrontational tone of President Xi Jinping. The Chinese leader said just this week that the U.S. was using, quote, containment, encirclement, and suppression in a bid to limit China's rise. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. The state Senate in Mississippi has voted to expand state-run police in the majority black capital city of Jackson. NPR's Martin Costi has more. The state has already expanded its capital police into a nine-square-mile area of Jackson. But under this legislation, capital police could patrol the whole city alongside Jackson's regular police department. Curtis Nichols of the Mississippi Poor People's Campaign calls this a power grab. When senators that are from other areas and they hire a militia to come into your town, that's exactly what it's going to feel like. But others have welcomed the extra policing as Jackson struggles with one of the worst homicide rates in the country. The Senate bill does not include a controversial measure passed last month in the state house to create a separate judicial district in the heart of Jackson, something the mayor likened to apartheid. 
Martin Costi, NPR News. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell says he's keeping an open mind about how high interest rates will need to go to tamp down stubbornly high inflation. NPR Scott Horsley reports Powell wrapped up a second day of testimony on Capitol Hill today. Powell rattled financial markets on Tuesday when he told a Senate committee the Fed might have to be more aggressive than expected in boosting interest rates. Speaking this time to a House panel, Powell stressed that while a larger rate hike is possible this month, he and his colleagues are still waiting for some key information a February jobs report due out on Friday, and a monthly inflation snapshot set for next week. We have not made any decision about the March meeting. We're not going to do that until we see the the additional data. The larger point, though, is that we're not on a preset path and that we will be guided by the incoming data and the evolving outlook. Betting markets now expect that next interest rate hike to be half a percentage point. Scott Horsley, NPR News. Washington. A private sector jobs report out today shows private payrolls rising by 242,000 last month. A mixed close on Wall Street today. The Dow up 58 points. The Nasdaq was up 45 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is praising the city council after it approved her rent control measure. Today, all but two councilors voted to pass her petition to cap yearly rent increases at 10 percent for many properties. WBUR's Yasmeen Ammer reports. Next stop for Mayor Wu's rent control measure, Beacon Hill. She said the city council vote sends a strong message to state lawmakers who have to approve the measure before it's implemented. I think we all share an urgency in knowing that this can't stand for Boston. We cannot be a place where people get pushed out from the communities that they want to continue contributing to. Critics, including some real estate groups and landlords, say any rent control discourages developers from building more housing. Wu rejects that argument and says the measure is meant to prevent more extreme instances of price gouging. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmeen Ammer. We have a correction now in a story we brought you earlier today on a Somerville school committee vote. The school committee has not voted to permanently remove officers from the city's public schools. On Monday night, the committee voted to include that proposal in future discussions of a draft policy on policing in the school district. The committee and school district leaders have not yet finalized the policy. A conservative advocacy group is applauding a plan by State Auditor Diana DiZoglio to audit the Massachusetts legislature. The Massachusetts Fiscal Alliance calls the plan a welcome check on the power of the most opaque state government in the country. DeZoglio says she hopes the audit will help increase transparency, accountability, and equity in government. And Massachusetts residents should be on the lookout for some uninvited guests. State wildlife officials say black bears typically wake up from hibernation and go looking for food in March. The Division of Fisheries and Wildlife warns residents to take down bird feeders, clear yard garbage, and remove outdoor food sources. Black bears are usually more prominent in northern Middlesex County, Worcester County, and in western Mass. There are more than 4,000 of them in the state. 45 degrees now, clouds galore tonight. Maybe a few rain or snow showers down around freezing. Still windy tonight, tomorrow as well. Clouds in for another day tomorrow with highs in the mid-40s. Friday should feature some sunshine with temperatures in the 40s again. 45 degrees now in Boston at 5.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by iDrive with Remote PC, providing remote access to PCs, Macs, and servers from anywhere, designed to assist those working from home. More at remotepc.com. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. There's a House Select panel looking into the coronavirus pandemic. And today marked a new wave of efforts by Congress to get to the bottom of COVID-19's origin story. Here's Committee Chairman Republican Brad Wenstrup of Ohio at the panel's first hearing under GOP control. Discovering the origins is vital. It matters for the future of the world. And we aren't finished. We're just beginning. The hearing was also punctuated by fights over partisan divides and controversial claims. We're joined now by NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales and NPR science correspondent Jeff Brumfield to tell us more. Good to have you both here. Hey there. Hi. So, Claudia, Democrats launched this panel in the last Congress, but Republicans kept it going with new leadership. What's changed? Right. This is a House Oversight Committee sub-panel. It was previously focused on the Trump administration under Democrats, but now it's led by Chairman Wenstrup, who you heard there at the top. This is a doctor from Ohio. And for Democrats, you're also being led by a doctor on this panel. That is California's Raul Ruiz. He touched on new Democratic worries that extreme partisan rhetoric could now overtake probes by this committee. If we truly want to follow the evidence... The truth is that the evidence as we have it now is inconclusive. Still, Republicans argued the investigation into the origins of COVID have been ignored and stymied, so it's catch-up time for them. And it's also a reminder this panel is still pretty far apart along this partisan divide. Yeah, one of the most contentious parts of the debate has been Republican efforts to tie the lab leak theory to U.S. public health officials like Dr. Anthony Fauci. So, Jeff, did that come up in today's hearing? Yeah, it came up several times. Uh, The claim here is that Fauci and others tried to suppress discussion of a leak from a lab for various self-interested research for various self-interested reasons. I actually spoke to Fauci right after the hearing, and he vigorously denied that claim, said he'd be happy to talk to the uh, committee himself. Interestingly, the Republicans' own witnesses didn't seem interested in discussing it much either. Former CDC Director Robert Redfield said he thought that Fauci did inappropriately redirect the debate early on, but he doesn't think it was a cover-up. And another Republican witness, Jamie Metzl of the Atlantic Council, said that focusing too much on Fauci risked taking the focus off the real problem, which in his opinion was the Chinese government's refusal to share vital data on the origins of COVID. If we make it primarily about Dr. Fauci, we will be inappropriately serving the Chinese government a propaganda coup on a silver platter. Republicans on the panel did spend a lot of their time talking about the idea that this came from a Chinese government lab, reiterating that belief over and over. And, Claudia, what did Democrats spend most of their time talking about? Right. We heard members such as Jamie Raskin of Maryland say regardless of the origin of the pandemic, it will not remove blame from former President Trump and his role in not doing more to stop the spread of coronavirus. Democrats also zeroed in on a controversial witness who was invited by Republicans. This is Nicholas Wade. He wrote a book that was popular among white supremacists for its theories about race and genetic backgrounds. It was disavowed by more than 100 scientists. And this triggered several combative moments today, including one between Maryland Democrat Kawisi Umfume and Wade, who rejected claims he was a racist. I am not a racist. I don't have anything in common with the views of white supremacists. Just because they love you, though. Just because David Duke likes my book. All of them is, love you. 
That said, there are opportunities here for, bo for both sides to work together. In the coming days, we're expecting a strong bipartisan vote in the House on legislation pushing U.S. intelligence officials to declassify more information related to the origins of COVID. And finally, Jeff, how did this hearing stack up in terms of the science? You know, most of the witnesses called to this hearing believed it's more likely coronavirus came from a laboratory. In scientific circles, I'd say the majority view is still that it likely came from animals in the wild. There was no real new evidence here, and what we heard was circumstantial. It all ties back to the fact that there was a lab studying coronaviruses in the city where the outbreak began. That shouldn't be discounted or anything, but there's strong genetic and epidemiological evidence linking the outbreak to a market where live animals were bought and sold. Unfortunately, it's going to be really hard to figure this out with out China's cooperation, and that was something everyone seemed to agree on. China was not helping to figure out where this came from. NPR's Jeff Brumfield and Claudia Grisales, thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. All right. The Justice Department today said the Louisville Metro Police Department routinely violates people's civil rights. The sweeping findings came out of a two-year investigation that also found Louisville officers conducted unlawful searches and discriminated against black people. The federal government began investigating the department after the police killing of Breonna Taylor during a botched raid in 2020. And her death led to a wave of national protests against police brutality. Joining us now to discuss all of this is Roberto Roldan of Louisville Public Media. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us. So I want to start with what the Justice Department had to say. I know that the Attorney General, Merrick Garland, traveled to Louisville to make this announcement. Tell us more about what he said exactly. So the DOJ released a 90-page report this morning. In addition to analyzing data from traffic stops, search warrants, and citations, there were also dozens of example incidents collected from residents and from body camera footage. Attorney General Garland highlighted some of the shocking examples, really, of discrimination that they found. Some have videotaped themselves throwing drinks at pedestrians from their cars, insulted people with disabilities, and called black people monkeys animal, and boy. Wow. Garland called the behavior that they found within the police department an affront to officers who do their job with integrity and really an affront to the people of Louisville. Mm -hmm. And I understand that the mayor of Louisville was there at the press conference and also spoke. What was his reaction to all of this? Yeah, so it's important to note that the investigation looked at Louisville police between 2016 and 2021. At that time, Mayor Greg Fisher was the mayor in charge. The current mayor, Craig Greenberg, was just elected last November. And during the press conference, Greenberg spoke directly to people who would try to dismiss the report as political. This is about our city, our neighbors, and how we serve them. We will not make excuses. We will make changes. Greenberg said that he wants the community to be a part of instituting policing reforms and rebuilding public trust. But at the same time, he acknowledged that there are people who, who wouldn't be surprised by the report because they experienced that misconduct directly. And he said they were dismissed by officials when they raised those red flags. Well, as we mentioned, Breonna Taylor's killing in her apartment led to months of unrest and protests. How was this report received today from people who've been calling for change for mm -hmm. so long? Yeah, I mean, without Breonna Taylor's mother and without the thousands of people who took to the streets in 2020, this announcement probably wouldn't have happened today. 
Following Garland's announcement, um, a lot of the folks who were involved in the protests gathered at a park across from Louisville Metro Hall, which is the same place that was the heart of activity back then. Organizer and, and formal mayoral candidate Shamika Parrish-Wright said the DOJ report was validating for her, and she was herself arrested during the protest. Ultimately, I think those charges were dropped. It really felt good to be acknowledged, to be heard, and all that gaslighting they've been doing to us, to have their boss's boss, the top of policing, acknowledge that Louisville has done us wrong for so long. And Breonna Taylor's mother, Tamika Palmer, said at a separate press conference that she knew that her daughter should have never been killed, and and she just wants the city to move forward quickly towards real reforms. Well, now that the Justice Department has released its investigation of the police department in Louisville, what happens at this point? Louisville's already signed an agreement in principle with the DOJ to start negotiating a consent decree, um, which is essentially just a list of agreed upon reforms. A federal judge and an independent monitor will oversee the city's progress there. There was a number of reforms released by the DOJ, including strengthening civilian oversight of policing, creating new use of force training and improving policies related to search warrants and to protests. That is Roberto Roldan of Louisville Public Media. Thank you so much, Roberto. Thank you. The creator of the beloved Olivia picture book series has died. Ian Falconer was 63 years old. NPR's Chloe Veltman says the famed writer and illustrator was a man of many talents. Falconer came up with his illustrated story about a spry and sassy young pig as a Christmas gift in 1996 for his then three-year-old niece. This amazing character that just really jumped off the pages. I knew that kids would be able to connect with her. That's Anne Schwartz. She was Falconer's first editor at Simon & Schuster. She says Olivia's red and black illustrations immediately stood out. To see something so stark and so graphically striking was really unusual. The eight-book series Falconer went on to create has sold more than 10 million copies since 2000 and inspired an animated TV series. Rule of life number 54. Mothers know lots of things, but only grandmothers really know how to pack for a vacation. Born in 1959 in Ridgefield, Connecticut, Falconer grew up to be as precocious as his piggy protagonist. He illustrated 30 New Yorker magazine covers and was also in demand at some of the world's top ballet companies and opera houses as a designer of costumes and sets. Stage and screenwriter Jeff Whitty says he'll never forget the way Falconer seamlessly fused live action with video in a Paris production of the 19th century comic opera Véronique. It was 2008. Whitty says video on stage was still new. There was a big fountain upstage center and the actor jumps into the fountain and it goes to video and he swims away from the audience. Whitty says Falconer showed him how to enjoy the artist's life. You can enjoy the nights staying up till 4 a.m., arguing and staggering home together. Whitty says Ian Falconer was not only a great artist, but also a mentor to many young hopefuls like himself. Chloe Veltman, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR's All Things Considered, Merriam-Webster Dictionary put out a call asking people to share words in other languages that don't fully translate to English. People came through. That story is ahead.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Camp Mara Vista, where kids ages 8 to 17 discover their best selves in the New Hampshire mountains. Enrolling now at AYF.com slash Vista. It was a mixed bag for Wall Street today. The Dow lost about two-tenths of a percent, 58 points, to close at 32,798. S&P picked up 0.14 percent to finish the day at 3,992. And the Nasdaq rose four-tenths of a percent. It ended the day at 11,576. Marketplace has details coming up at 6.30. It is now 5.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com. Tonight, the Celtics play host to the Portland Trailblazers at the Garden. Tip-off is at 7.30. Red Sox have an exhibition game against the Puerto Rico baseball team, which is preparing for its game Saturday in the World Baseball Classic in Fort Myers. A nice remainder of the day today. Cloudy skies tonight, lows about freezing. Clouds stick around tomorrow, highs in the mid-40s again. Then the sunshine finally appears for Friday. It should be in the upper 40s once again. 45 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. California's housing crisis is acute, and the state wants cities to do something about it. But when cities fail to act, there's a tool that allows developers to circumvent local regulations. From member station KQED, Aditi Bundlamudi reports on the, quote, builder's remedy. Sasha Zbrozek and his wife Stella moved to Los Altos Hills near San Jose in 2019. They fell in love with their house. It's kind of funky. It's got a steep, slanted exterior that echoes the slope of the mountains. There's a huge spiral staircase. What I liked about this place was that it wasn't cookie cutter, and so being different was the attraction. He and his wife hoped to raise their kids there someday. That is, until the first rainstorm when wet spots appeared on the walls. I punched some holes in some drywall, and that's when I got to see some of the structure of the place. It's like, wow, you know, there's very little wood left here. No wonder it smells weird. It is all rotting away. He went to get the permits for the repairs, thinking they'd be done in a few months, but found himself caught in the middle of an arduous two-year process. Meanwhile... I'm living in this house, right? It's cold. It's wet. You know, my net worth has gone down a lot. Costs to construct have gone up a lot. Zbrozek needed some way to make up the money he was bleeding from these repairs. The back of his two-acre lot is empty, and he thought, why not put housing there? 
He was so frustrated with this process, he quit his job as a software developer and became a housing developer instead. I submitted a five-unit project. It's three buildings, two duplexes, and one freestanding unit. But the city says Zbrozek is not allowed to build townhouses there because his neighborhood is zoned for single-family homes. Enter the builder's remedy. The builder's remedy has actually been on the books for a long time, since 1990. But developers were afraid to use it. That's Chris Elmendorf, a land use law professor at UC Davis. Thanks to some recently passed state laws, the builder's remedy has more teeth. Every eight years, the state has to sign off on a city's housing plan, or a city can face consequences. Those include the loss of funding for transportation and affordable housing, lawsuits, and, you guessed it, the builder's remedy. Elmendorf says it allows developers to circumvent local building rules. The usual basis on which a city denies a project It's too tall, it's too big, it doesn't conform to community character. All of that is off the table. Already, developers are trying this tactic up and down the state. In Santa Monica, they submitted 16 builders' remedy projects while the city was out of compliance, which could result in almost 5,000 new units, about 1,000 of them considered affordable housing. But the builder's remedy terrifies some residents of Los Altos Hills, like Bob Manili, who spoke up at a recent city council meeting. Developers are going to snap up every old ranch house that comes on the market and use the builder's remedy to put multi-story housing on our one-acre lots. California isn't alone in trying to force cities to build housing using the builder's remedy. Both New Jersey and Massachusetts have similar laws on the books. It's been successful here, important tool in our housing planning toolbox. Amy Dane is a housing policy researcher in Massachusetts. She says developers there have built more than 100,000 housing units since their law went into effect in 1969. Almost half of them are affordable. Really, you would prefer to have cities and towns plan for growth, and instead we're over-restrictive, and then we get a builder's remedy where builders come in and build what the towns and cities hadn't planned for. Here in California, the state has yet to approve Los Altos Hills' plan for reaching mandated housing goals. If it doesn't, homeowner-turned-developer Sasha Zbrozek says he's ready. Then I get to go back to the town, you know, go tap-tap, you know, hey, I would like to have my entitlement, please. Which, for him, means building those townhouses in his backyard and fixing up his leaky home. For NPR News, I'm Aditi Bandlamudi in Los Altos Hills, California. By now, we're used to seeing filters on social media that make people look more attractive. But TikTok has unveiled a new one powered by artificial intelligence that has freaked out the Internet for being maybe too good. NPR's Bobby Allen reports on what TikTokers are saying. Annie Luong noticed it right away when she opened up TikTok recently. I just saw a lot of girls turning on this filter and their reactions to the filter and how it was such an advanced filter. So I want to try it. Luang is talking about TikTok's new beauty filter called Bold Glamour. It's become a viral sensation because it's different than past beauty filters. It uses advanced artificial intelligence. Instead of just putting a digital layer over your face, this filter completely recreates your nose, chin, cheeks and eyes using a process known as machine learning. Luang, a 28-year-old who works in management consulting in Toronto, looked at herself in the bold glamour filter and thought, Okay, this looks pretty cool, but it just didn't feel like reality. And maybe that it's because I know that it's not reality where I'm like, I, I know that's not how I look in person. I know that's 
I'm not even going to try to look like that. Some of the tens of millions of TikTokers who have tried the filter have had similar reactions. Like, this is hard to tell that it's a filter. This is just so scary. Like, it's so realistic, this one, and so damaging for people that think that this is what everyone should look like. I don't know what kind of sorcery that filter is. Not only is the filter creating a glossier, skinnier, more movie star version of yourself, but people have been freaking out because it's just so persuasive. Luke Hurd is a consultant who works on filters for Instagram and Snapchat. It is different. It's not cartoony. It's not drastically aging you or turning you into a child or, or flipping your gender on its head. And there are a lot of times where you have to kind of look down in the corner and see, wait, is there a, is there a filter on this person? Uh, and, and lately it's been yes. <laughs> that blurring of the line between reality and fiction is something that can have a lasting effect on your sense of self, says Renee Engelm. She's the director of the Body and Media Lab at Northwestern University. So your own face that you see in the mirror suddenly looks ugly to you. It doesn't look good enough. It looks like something you need to change. It makes you more interested in plastic surgery or other kinds of procedures. Engeln says some might see a TikTok filter as a playful thing, but it should be taken seriously. It's not like a TikTok filter directly causes clinical depression, but I think it adds to this culture where a lot of young people are feeling really alienated from themselves. Whether creating freakishly good images out of scratch or chatbots that can hold sometimes disturbing conversations, artificial intelligence has been taking the internet by storm. And TikTok and other social media companies are trying to incorporate the latest AI magic into their apps to seize the moment. TikTok wouldn't comment on the design of the filter, and they wouldn't discuss how the feature could potentially worsen people's image of themselves. Luang in Toronto says she's happy to see so many people on TikTok, mostly young women, using the filter to talk about how social media perpetuates unattainable beauty standards. Many who commented on her video using the filter said, you know, I prefer the version of you without this filter. But then there were a few comments where it's like, oh, it, it improves so much, like you look so much better, like you should always keep that filter on. Another TikToker said as she turned the filter on then off, no wonder everyone feels so ugly all the time. Bobby Allen, NPR News. Support for All Tech Considered comes from BetterHelp. Committed to supporting mental health through therapy, clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Marketplace this evening, a government research center has designed a video game. The object, model a sustainable federal budget. You really do have a choice about how you want society to run, what you want government to accomplish, and that you need to sort of get the numbers to work within the context of those goals. What the fiscal ship video game can teach us about building the federal budget coming up on Marketplace starts at 6.30. And coming up in about 25 minutes, Brazilian samba musician Jose already conquered Rio, and now he's here to give the U.S. a taste of Brazil with his new album. That's still to come. 43 degrees now, could see light snow or rain before midnight tonight. Clouds all night, strong winds down around freezing tomorrow. Cloudy once again, slight chance of showers should be in the mid-40s once again. WBUR supporters include Serta Pro Painters. 
professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business, personalized to your needs. CertaPro.com. That's Serta with a C. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, the words in our favorite books never change. The words on our e-readers can't. Writing used to be set in stone, literally and figuratively, but digital copyright holders can change the content of that favorite book if it's on, say, your iPad. The Boston Globe's Hiawatha Bray explains. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. On Capitol Hill, the House Foreign Affairs Committee is delving into the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan in 2021, ending a nearly 20-year military presence that resulted in the Taliban regaining control. NPR's Quill Lawrence reports on what was a notably partisan hearing today. Republicans highlighted the Biden administration's chaotic end to America's 20-year war. Democrats blamed the Trump administration's deal with the Taliban for setting the conditions for failure. Veterans testified about violence during the evacuation at Kabul airport and the abandonment of Afghan allies there. Former Green Beret Colonel David Scott Mann called for accountability. If we don't set politics aside and pursue accountability and lessons learned to address this grievous moral injury on our military community and right the wrongs that have been inflicted on our most at-risk Afghan allies, this colossal foreign policy failure will follow us home. Mann led an ad hoc group to help Afghans escape. Legislation to aid Afghan allies is stalled in Congress. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. In Memphis, Tennessee, a judge has delayed the public release of additional video recordings from the night police severely beat Black Motors' Tyree Nichols, who died three days later. As Kate Reardon of member station WKNO tells us, another 20 hours of recordings had been scheduled for release today. In addition to the recordings, the city of Memphis was also preparing to share documents related to disciplinary hearings of police department employees implicated in the incident. Seven officers have been fired for their role, including five who face second-degree murder charges for Nichols' death. A judge agreed to a request from one of the officer's attorneys to allow the defense to review the video, audio, and documents before they are released to the public. The court says the information, which is subject to further order, will be released, quote, as soon as practicable. For NPR News, I'm Katie Reardon in Memphis. Stocks finish mostly mixed on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts U.S. Senator Ed Markey is voluntarily recognizing his staff's effort to unionize. That will make the staff the first U.S. Senate office to organize. The union that represents the workers says 100 percent of Markey's staffers support the effort. In a tweet today, Markey said he applauds his employees' effort to organize. He calls it a fundamental exercise in democracy. The Suffolk County DA has dropped charges against a Rhode Island-based trainer who works with NBA players. He was accused of drugging and raping a woman at a Boston hotel in November. WBR's Deborah Becker reports. Suffolk County DA Kevin Hayden's office filed papers Wednesday to dismiss the charges against Robert McClanahan. The documents say prosecutors no longer believe they have enough evidence to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. The woman said she had drinks with McClanahan and they went to her Boston hotel room. She said she blacked out. When she woke up the following day, she didn't remember what happened and she was injured. Prosecutors did not say specifically what caused them to drop the case. McClanahan's attorney, Kelly Porges, said her client is relieved and the DA's decision shows that McClanahan is innocent. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. 
The COVID vaccine mandate that's been in place at all 15 Massachusetts community colleges is being lifted. The presidents of the colleges issued a joint statement on the change last week. It says COVID vaccine requirements for most students and employees will end after the spring semester. Certain groups of students and employees may still be required to be vaccinated as a condition of clinical placements. The colleges say the policy shift is due in part to the changing public health landscape around COVID. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Now's the time for entrepreneurial leaders, and Babson educates them to navigate today's world. Ranked number one for entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, a Babson MBA helps you stand out as a professional who takes action. Apply by March 16th to start this fall. Babson.edu slash MBA. Got an off chance of flurries or light rain early tonight, but a good chance of clouds. Overcast skies, lows about 31, still windy overnight. Tomorrow should bring back the clouds along with the gusty winds, about as warm as today has been in the mid-40s. And then finally on Friday, lots of sunshine still in the mid-40s. Could be back to the clouds, though, on Saturday. 43 degrees now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed. Designed to be an all-in-one hiring platform with tools to help businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates they need to fill all their job openings. More at indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. When you cross the U.S.-Mexico border into Matamoros, you immediately see healthcare facilities, pharmacies, dentists, clinics. More than a million people cross the southern border every year for what's known as medical tourism. The four U.S. citizens who were kidnapped last weekend were among them. Two were killed. Two others are recovering in the U.S., David Viquist runs the Center for Medical Tourism Research at the University of the Incarnate Word in San Antonio, Texas. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you very much. According to the group Patients Without Borders, travel to Mexico for medical reasons is now back to pre-pandemic levels. What does your research show in terms of the numbers? We're seeing the same thing, um, and we're expecting to have um, an increase uh, from what the numbers we saw in 2019 We saw an increase in physical problems during the pandemic, an increase in both um, mental health issues like depression and anxiety. And then uh, the people had having put off uh, both preventative care and primary care. Can you tell us what some of the most common procedures are that people cross the border for? Yeah, the uh, most common, according to research both by our center as well as the CDC, tends to be dental. Hmm. Most people feel that there's not much quality differences between a dentist, say, you know, south of the border and north of the border. So therefore, their major choice difference is essentially on price. If the quality is the same, then essentially the price makes up more of the value. So dental work is one common procedure. What else? Pharmaceuticals, traveling across the border for pharmaceuticals. Then come the general surgeries, which include cosmetics. We found that cosmetics probably make up upwards of about 13%. And that was uh, one of the procedures that uh, one of the victims of this kidnapping uh, was traveling for. Do you think this shows 
a problem or a failing of the U.S. healthcare system, or is it sort of like, well, people are looking for a deal, and if they find a better price on one side of the border, they will go there instead of staying on their side of the border? There's very little that we can do in terms of this arbitrage. It's um, it's like the issues that have been raised in the United States in terms of being built in the United States uh, when it comes to cars or anything else. And people are always going to be looking for what they perceive to be better value. And that could be French wines or it could be Korean cars. In this case, it happens to be healthcare that's international. I think this is not something that can necessarily be solved by just investments in infrastructure, or even policy changes. It, it truly is uh, the consumerization of healthcare. It's obviously very unusual for medical tourism to end in a kidnapping, but tell us about the risks. Is it generally safe? So there's two aspects. One, of course, is the quality aspects. And the little data that we do have does show that there doesn't appear to be significant differences. For example, the CDC did some research on uh, self-reported uh, outcomes, bad outcomes that people received from having gone abroad for healthcare. And when you compare those to U.S., outcomes, they don't appear to be significantly different. So this is generally medically safe. What about in terms of security, like kidnapping and and gunfire? So what we've seen in medical tourism uh, throughout the world is obviously when people find an area to be unsafe or garners a bad reputation due to uh, criminality and other issues, then people don't tend to go there. Um, What we find is that in many places around the world, there, there is a, if you will, an unspoken rule that they try to avoid harming tourists, particularly medical tourists, because of the significant economic impacts they can have on the region. A University of Michigan study, for example, showed that for Mexico alone, crime and narco-terrorism and some of the other things that are going on could be costing the country up to 21% of its total GDP. What advice would you give people who are considering crossing the border for a medical procedure? Unfortunately, it's it's going to be buyer beware, uh, which is that you have to get as much information and get as much data as you can before you make that decision. David Vquist runs the Center for Medical Tourism Research at the University of the Incarnate Word in San Antonio. Thank you. Thank you so much, and I appreciate very much your time. The dictionary tweeted the other day. It was the account run by Merriam-Webster, and it asked people to share what they considered to be perfect words from other languages that don't have a direct equivalent in English. Lots of people replied to that tweet, so we asked some of them to tell us more about their favorite non-English words. My name is Julie Caffley. I'm calling from Ottawa, Canada. My favorite word that doesn't exist in English is the word in French, débrouillard. And débrouillard, if you literally translate it, means somebody who removes the fog. The closest thing in English would be the idea of somebody who is resourceful, who's creative, figures a way through the fog or through the the confusion and just um, gets to results, is efficient. It's a quality that I love in people, and it's something that I'm always trying to say in English, and frankly, uh, the word doesn't exist. Hello, my name is Rafa, and I'm a software engineer based in San Francisco. And today I want to talk about the word estrenar, 
which is a Spanish word that doesn't really have a translation in English. It could mean to break something in, but it doesn't have to be something you wear. So it could be a new car, a new pair of shoes, or even like a new partner that you're bringing to a party or a social gathering with you for the first time. In general, though, there isn't like a general translation, which is funny because I feel like usually I have this problem in the opposite direction where English has so many words that sometimes it's just very hard to find a Spanish word that conveys the same nuance or the same connotations that an English word. My name is Kyle Wark. My Klingit names are Kuchitin and Tchakaish. I'm a healthcare researcher uh, in Anchorage, Alaska. The word that I shared was ha-shakun, which means our ancestors, but because the Klingit believe in reincarnation, it's also our descendants, the ancestors who will come back to us. But it also means a lot more than that, too. It means the history of our ancestors, codified in places, stories, songs, names, art, customs, etc., that guide our lives. The concept of Hashagun is also related to Hakustayi, which means our way of life or our culture. My name is Stephanie Thompson. I'm originally from Lebanon, and in Lebanese Arabic, one of my favorite words is Subhayi, which refers to that period of time in the morning when no one else is awake but you, and you can have some quiet time to yourself before the household is awake. My mother often used to have a subhayye by herself or with one of my aunts or her friends. And now that I'm a mom of two myself and I don't sleep in anymore, I really value that time when you can just gather your thoughts and have that moment to yourself. That was Stephanie Thompson, Kyle Wark, Rafa Martinez Avial, and Julie Caffley with some of their favorite words. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Today, the U.S. Senate is expected to block a sweeping criminal justice reform bill passed by local lawmakers in the District of Columbia. The years-long effort to rewrite the city's aging criminal laws ran headfirst into a growing national political fight around crime and public safety. And it's put Democrats and even President Biden on the defensive. Reporter Martin Ostermule from member station WAMU has been following the debate in the district and in Congress, and he joins us now. Hey, Martin. Hi, thanks for having me. Hey, okay, so this bill that we're talking about would essentially rewrite the District of Columbia's criminal laws from top to bottom, right? Like, why is this even happening? Well, in short, the entire criminal code in the district is 120 years old. It's full of outdated offenses and a hodgepodge of penalties. It's got references to steamboats, to livestock, to old English ball games that no one <laughs> plays anymore. So, and in many cases, modern criminal codes make prosecuting crime easier since it better defines criminal offenses and so on. So dozens of states have modernized their criminal codes already, but unlike the states, the District of Columbia is overseen by Congress, and that gave members of Congress a chance to dump it, to jump into this very difficult debate. Right. And Republicans seem to have taken up that fight. Last month, the Republican-led House voted to block the district's new criminal code. What have senators been saying? 
Well, the biggest issue for a dozen or so Republican senators who have spoken so far this afternoon is decreases to some maximum prison sentences for violent crimes in the district. So armed carjacking, for example, which is a problem in the district like it is in many cities. It currently has a 40-year maximum prison sentence in the city, and this new criminal code would bring it down to 24 years. Now, advocates say there that these sorts of decreases simply match what judges are actually handing out in terms of sentences. But those decreases also give Republican critics in Congress this big opening to not just attack this local bill, but also force Democrats into a debate that they didn't necessarily want on, on crime. And this is what West Virginia Senator Shelley Moore Capito said today. Under the Biden administration's soft on crime agenda and rhetoric, Washington, D.C., the capital of our beautiful country, has seen a 25 percent increase in crime. So crime has been up in many places across the country since the pandemic hit, and Republicans see it as a pretty powerful hammer on ahead of next year's elections. And then President Biden weighed in last week, right, saying he would not step in on the district's behalf, even though he is an advocate for statehood. How, how did that affect this debate? I mean, it was a political earthquake in the district. There was this assumption that even though the House had voted against the, the city and the Senate was moving in that same direction on, the, on this new criminal code, Biden would just use his veto power. He is a supporter of statehood after all, but he didn't. And the political calculus here is that he sees how crime could be an unpleasant issue for Democrats to deal with in next year's elections. Now, when the House voted on this issue last month, 31 Democrats sided with Republicans and Republicans are already running ads against the ones who didn't, calling them soft on crime. So how have other Democrats responded? Well, they've mostly tried to duck the debate, honestly. There was only two senators in the, who spoke today on behalf of the city. New Jersey Senator Cory Booker said that the city's new criminal code actually increases many penalties and will make prosecuting crime easier. And Maryland Senator Chris Van Hollen said there's a bigger philosophical point here that Congress should not be interfering in, in the district's local affairs. Here's what he said. Its residents, its citizens are fully capable of deciding their own law and deciding their own future. Of course, not even President Biden has agreed with that principle in this case, and plenty of other Democrats in Congress aren't either. That is reporter Martin Ostermule from member station WAMU. Thank you, Martin. Thanks for having me. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in the next half hour on All Things Considered, eight years ago there was a series of landslides, one of which took the lives of three locals in Sitka, Alaska. Sitka chose to respond with science. That story is still to come. Checking business, Massachusetts restaurants want the state to let them keep offering to-go cocktails. The state allowed customers to order takeout alcohol during the pandemic to help businesses stay afloat, but the law permitting it expires next month. The Massachusetts Restaurant Association is asking the Senate to include to-go cocktails in its outdoor dining measure. The Senate takes it up tomorrow. And some North End restaurant owners are claiming that Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is biased against Italian-Americans and white men. Five business owners make the accusation in a lawsuit they filed over the city's outdoor dining restrictions in the neighborhood with predominantly Italian restaurants. Mayor Wu's administration imposed rules that include a ban on the use of North End streets for tables. She says the neighborhood streets are just too narrow for outdoor dining. This is 90.9 WBUR, the forecast overnight tonight. Lots of clouds around, temperatures about 30 degrees. Cloudy again tomorrow, slight chance of showers in the mid-40s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org. 
In Florida, Kansas, and Pennsylvania, high school productions of Broadway shows have been canceled after parents and school officials complain about content. In Ohio, students pushed back, then Broadway took notice. And we were all like, yes, let's fight it, let's do it. We love this show. We think it's a really good show and something worth putting on. Don't mess with the theater kids. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Handel and Haydn Society. Experience new heights with music by Mendelssohn and Mozart's first flute concerto next weekend at Symphony Hall. HandelandHaydn.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Maybe it's the warm weather, maybe it's the world-famous beaches with mountains on the horizon in both cities. Well, whatever the reason, musician Jose says nothing makes him feel more like a native son of Rio de Janeiro than working in Los Angeles. Yes, it's a little cliche, but when we are out from Brazil, we can look to, to our culture with in a big picture, you know? I think I feel more Brazilian here. He moved to L.A. a few years ago after releasing eight albums in Brazil. And while he was recording in L.A. with some hip-hop artists, the man who was born, Jose Jose Curi, found a new identity. And the guys asked my name, what's your name? My name is Roger. And the guys, what's your last name? My last name is Curi. And the guy said, oh, Curi, man. Curry Man became the title of Jose's new album, his first produced and recorded in the U.S. It's Brazilian samba influenced by American funk. He worked closely with producer Tommy Brennick, who's collaborated with Beyonce, Lady Gaga, Amy Winehouse, and more. Tommy bring other angle, other vision for the music. And that's what I'm always looking for. I'm not just a guy to love music and just love my culture, Brazilian culture, and I really want to mix it with that culture here. I did look up the English translation of these lyrics, and, and the first song, Pra Vida, has a lyric that translates to, it doesn't matter if a door is closed, there's always an opened window. Yeah. And I wondered if that describes your experience going from making music in Brazil to the United States. Uh, my brother, when I arrived here, it was very tough. That song talk about we have to always go forward because we have to believe in the life, you know? Mm-hmm. Because I was living that, that experience here when I arrived here, I didn't have nothing. So why did you do it? I do it because in Brazil we have a big crisis over there, economic crisis, political crisis, social crisis, uh, security crisis, everything, everything was bad after, after the Olympic Games. And I used to come here to L.A. to record and I look around and say, oh, L.A. is the only, only place in the world that I can change with, with Rio because L.A. has everything, you know. It has a, a chance to develop my career. So I thought to myself, oh, this is going to be a big challenge, but maybe that's, that's the, the... You have to hear the, your voice inside. Everybody has the voice inside. Yeah. I have the song for that in this album too, Existe Uma Voz. Existe Uma Voz. I was just going to ask about that song. Yeah, tell us about this. 
everybody has a voice inside. You have to hear this voice. You know, if you are quiet and pay attention, you, everybody, you have a chance to understand what's the good direction to go. Because always life testing you. To take a step back from the conversation about your life and your move and talk a little bit more about the music, mm-hmm. I was curious about the difference between samba and samba funk. Can you talk about what is happening rhythmically when you are doing a traditional samba and when you're doing samba funk? Yeah, this is a good example, you know, because when I make this song, I think the guys play funk, like funk, like James Brown funk, you know? We use the 16s. You you have this one in samba too. Yeah. We have this in. We have the, when you use the 16. It's the same in the samba. It's a But the guys play. Ah, ah, the other one is. Eu gosto dela. Eu gosto dela. Eu fico afim. So tell us what we're hearing in this one. This is. It's more the the the, the 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 half samba and half funky too because it's, the samba is it's half samba. But the guitar is sometimes play double. The, we, we mix it with the double time and half time. Mm. It's a kind of mix it too with Brazilian, mm. very Brazilian. And I think sounds universal. People will obviously listen to this album in different contexts, but I understand that the context of your live performances is very specific. Can you paint a picture for us of when you are in a room doing a show, what's happening? For me, is like a spiritual thing. The stage, you know, the, the room, and because you have the energy with the people with you. For me, the crowd makes the show. You describe making music as a spiritual experience, and there are a couple songs on this album that talk explicitly about spirituality. Can you tell us about one of them? Yes, I can tell about Yemanjá. O amor é feiticeiro, clareia a noite que não tem lua. Emanjá is a god of creation. Emanjá is a, a god of the ocean. So in Brazil we have uh, we have uh, Afro religion we call Candomblé. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful ritual, and we have a uh, like a, a orisha. Orishas are like a sand yeah. for every power of the nature. 
you feel like you're channeling this energy when you perform these songs, or are you singing about someone else's traditions? No, no, I really feel that. I really feel yeah. this for me. Is, I'm always trying to open for that energy. So these energies protect me and guide me, you know? And has a, I have a lot of respect for that because that is making me strong. I'm never alone. Never. Hmm. That's Jose, spelled R-O-G-E. His new album is Kuriman. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ari, for space, for your attention, you know. Thank you so much. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the new series Beyond Paradise. Detective Humphrey Goodman solves crimes on the English coast in this new spinoff of Death in Paradise, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from EBSCO with EBSCO Community, where libraries and library service providers come together to share ideas around open access open source, and open infrastructure at communities.ebsco.com. And from Carla Itzkovich, whose gift in memory of Moises Itzkovich, founder of the Moises Itzkovich Foundation, helps provide public radio news and information to communities around the world. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is 98.9 WBUR. Thanks for listening to WBUR this evening. Should have clouds galore overnight tonight, maybe a few showers down around freezing. Still windy tonight and tomorrow as well. Clouds in for another day tomorrow. Highs again in the mid-40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lyric Stage with The Great Leap. A friendship game of basketball midst turmoil at Tiananmen Square turns into a different game. Through March 19th, LyricStage.com. I'm here now, host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The heads of several federal agencies testified today before the Senate Intelligence Committee at a hearing on global threats to U.S. security. They say one of the dangerous threats come from the app owned by China, TikTok. Today is Wednesday, March 8th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Also ahead, thousands of demonstrators are protesting in the former Soviet Republic of Georgia. They're fighting proposed legislation that would force their media to register as foreign agents. And they are genuinely aggrieved to see their government introducing Russian-style laws to muzzle free speech. In 2015, an atmospheric phenomenon in Sitka, Alaska, triggered a series of landslides that killed three people. We'll hear how Sitka used science to lessen any future threat of the same thing happening. And the owner of a Chicago restaurant, Mr. Beef, has died. We'll hear from some of his favorite customers. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The U.S. Director of National Intelligence says the intelligence community remains divided over whether the coronavirus began in a laboratory or in nature. 
NPR's Jeff Bromfell has more. Speaking before the Senate Intelligence Committee, Avril Haines said that the agencies she helps oversee remain split. Four believe the virus started in nature, while two, the Department of Energy and FBI, favor a leak from a laboratory. On top of that, those two agencies have different reasons for their conclusions. It is a really challenging issue, and I think our folks honestly are trying to do the best that they can to figure out what exactly happened based on the information they have available to them. A separate hearing in the House of Representatives also probed the origins of COVID. One thing lawmakers on both sides of the aisle agree on, the Chinese government is not being open, and that's making it difficult to establish how the pandemic began. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News, Washington. That of a Russian mercenary group is now saying his forces have taken all of the eastern part of the Ukrainian city of Bakhmut. Fierce fighting has raged there for months. From Moscow, NPR's Charles Maines has the story. The claim came from the head of the Wagner Group mercenary force Yevgeny Prigozhin, who has routinely promoted Wagner's success around Bakhmut while playing down contributions by Russia's regular armed forces. In the latest sign of infighting between the two, Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu said his soldiers were liberating Bakhmut while making no mention of Wagner. Meanwhile, Ukraine's general staff said its troops continue to defend the city and inflict heavy losses on the Russian side. Earlier this week, President Volodymyr Zelensky said Kiev had ruled out a retreat in Bakhmut, a city that has become a costly symbol of Ukraine's grit and Russia's quest for a much-needed victory. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. The White House continues to release more information about President Biden's budget plan, which he's due to present tomorrow during a trip to Philadelphia. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre saying today the budget plan would cut deficits by nearly $3 trillion over the next decade. Markets ended the day mixed as the Federal Reserve Chair fielded more questions from lawmakers about the Fed's fight against high inflation. NPR's David Gurr reports. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell told the House Financial Services Committee he and his colleagues have not decided what they'll do at the Fed's next meeting, which takes place in about two weeks. But Wall Street is now betting they'll raise interest rates by half a percentage point, a larger increase than last time. In his testimony, Powell nodded to the strength of recent economic data and told lawmakers he wants to see what he called the totality of the data, which includes the next jobs report the Labor Department will release on Friday. If that comes in stronger than Wall Street's forecasted, Fed policymakers could back a larger increase. David Gura, NPR News, New York. U.S. financial markets, meanwhile, remain jittery today. The Dow was down 58 points. The Nasdaq up 45 points. The S&P rose 5 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A step forward for rent control in Boston. Today, the Boston City Council approved Mayor Michelle Wu's proposal to cap yearly rent increases at 10 percent but it would exempt triple-deckers, small owner-occupied units, and new buildings. WBR's Yasmin Ammer has more. The measure passed by an 11-2 vote. The council also rejected an amendment proposed by Councillor Michael Flaherty, which would have exempted landlords with six or fewer units. Councillor Ricardo Arroyo was among those voting yes. He said he doesn't think the measure goes far enough, but that it's necessary. This is a monumental act for the city of Boston. I commend the mayor for moving forward with a rent stabilization plan to address what has been and is an ongoing, long-standing issue of price gouging and rent gouging and displacement. The proposal has to be approved by the state legislature and the governor before it can go into effect. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. 
The mayor scored a second victory today. The city council also approved her proposal to reform the Boston Planning and Development Agency. It would ultimately create a new agency to plot out housing development in the city. The agency would be in charge with focusing on climate resiliency, affordability, and equity. Because the proposal is a home rule petition, it also needs approval from the state legislature and from the governor. State Representative David Linsky has refiled a bill to regulate so-called ghost guns. The guns are built from kits, they have no registration numbers, and they cannot be traced. Massachusetts State Police say they've seized multiple ghost guns in the past month. Linsky says his bill would make everyone safer. What is happening right now is that people are able to purchase kits and put together their own guns at home without going through any kind of background check or licensing process. And that is a significant public safety problem. Linsky's bill would require that registration numbers be attached to guns built at home. It would also outlaw the use or transmission of computer codes to build guns on a 3D printer. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell has joined a multi-state coalition challenging the popular social media app TikTok. The group of attorneys general is asking a Tennessee court to make the company preserve and hand over internal company documents. Authorities in Tennessee are investigating the app's effect on the mental health of young people. The brief filed in court cites TikTok's addictive features, including its endless scrolling. The Chinese-owned company recently said it would set a screen time limit for teenagers and to help them control how they spend their time online. The Senate is considering legislation that would allow President Biden to ban TikTok over concerns about the potential for spying by China or propaganda. In the forecast, cloudy and windy tonight, falling to about freezing. Tomorrow, clouds yet again. The off chance of showers once again in the mid-40s. Clouds should take a break on Friday and let the sun shine in, still in the mid-40s. 42 degrees now in Boston at 6.07. WBUR supporters include the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the maxim that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Five top national security officials testified today before the Senate Intelligence Committee in an annual event that assesses worldwide threats. They hammered home two key points. Russia is the most immediate concern, and China poses the major long-term challenge. NPR national security correspondent Greg Myrie is here to break it down for us. Hey, Greg. Hi, Elsa. Hi. Okay, so let's start with Russia. According to the testimony today, what should we be looking for next in Russia's war in Ukraine? Well, the intelligence chief said both sides, Russia and Ukraine, are both being worn down by this heavy fighting that's more than a year old. They could both face shortages of fresh troops and ammunition this year. Russia has been waging a new offensive in eastern Ukraine for the past month. Ukraine is widely expected to carry out its own offensive soon. But battlefield movements are often being measured by 100 yards here, a few hundred yards there. Neither side appears poised for a big advance. Here's Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, speaking about Russian leader Vladimir Putin. In short, we do not foresee the Russian military recovering enough this year to make major territorial gains, but Putin most likely calculates that time works in his favor. So the national security community is just not expecting a quick end to this war. 
Okay. Well, a year ago, the U.S. intelligence community was widely praised for going public with information on Russia's plans to invade Ukraine. And I'm curious, what was the tone like this year? So it was a mostly cordial hearing, but there was some criticism that the international, uh, sorry, the intelligence community hasn't solved some mysteries. Mm -hmm. Now, one example is a report that was produced just last week into the prolonged illnesses suffered by U.S. intelligence officers and diplomats and soldiers overseas, the so-called Havana syndrome. But the report didn't offer a clear explanation. Uh, it said that there was no evidence a foreign government was responsible, and the ailments were most likely a result of existing medical conditions. And this just didn't sit well with uh, New York Democratic Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. It essentially says is there's no external cause, which I think is really problematic. I find it unacceptable that we are not continuing diligent analysis of possible causes. Okay, let's turn to China, Greg, because the U.S. and China obviously have many points of friction at this moment. What concerns did the intelligence officials today lean into most? Well, they raised several. I'll mention two. One is President Xi Jinping. The other is technology. Now, President Xi is using increasingly strident language when he talks about the U.S., including remarks just this week where he said the U.S. is using, quote, containment, encirclement, and suppression to limit China. He's blaming the U.S. Uh, for economic problems uh, facing China and, and talks in very aggressive tones when he mentions the military. Of course, of course, the big concern here is a possible Chinese move on Taiwan. Right. Okay. And real quick, you mentioned technology. What was the message there? Well, uh, the short answer is TikTok. The senators and national security officials pointed to the wildly popular social media company owned by China. Mm -hmm. uh, they say that, that the Chinese government could get access to the data. And Chris Ray, the FBI director, said, quote, this just screams out with national security concerns. That is NPR's Greg Myrie. Thank you, Greg. My pleasure. In Tbilisi, Georgia today, thousands of demonstrators were chanting outside the parliament building, and police responded with water cannons and pepper spray. There are a lot of people right now in front of uh, the parliament of Georgia and Valley Avenue. Uh, a lot of political parties, opposition, uh, students, NGOs, civil society, and just ordinary Georgia That's Georgian member of parliament Khatia Dekanoidze, who we reached earlier today. The demonstrators are fighting proposed legislation that would force media and NGOs to register as foreign agents. Demonstrators see it as another shift towards Russian-style authoritarianism in a country that, like Ukraine, has been through its own invasion and occupation by Russian forces. Conceptually, it's Russian law. Putin adopted this kind of law in 2012. Uh, and gradually killing civil society and NGOs. Journalist Robin Forstier-Walker is covering the story from Tbilisi. Welcome to All Things Considered. Pleasure to speak to you. Tell me what you've been seeing out there the last few days. Yesterday was particularly shocking. Uh, we saw Molotov cocktails being thrown into ranks of police uh, that were in body armor. And we saw the police callously using pepper spray to squirt in the faces of protesters that were standing right in front of them peacefully. And we saw people suffering from the effects of tear gas and water cannon. And we see that determination in people's faces. We see very angry um, young Georgians, but Georgians of different generations too, coming out to say, look, 
this is not in Georgia's interests, is not in our interests. And they're concerned that the European Union has basically said that this is no way going to serve Georgia's interests in being accepted for candidate status of the European Union. This is not the first protest in recent months or even years outside Georgia's parliament, but does what you're seeing this week feel different? Well, it's really looking like a very large numbers are back out on the streets. This government is unpopular with a large part of society that believes it's taking the country away from its European aspirations. But this one feels different just because of the indignation and outrage at the way the government has tried to force through these laws, because the law looks eerily similar to the one that uh, Russia introduced 10 years ago and targets civil society and the media and will have a very chilling effect on those groups, those organizations that do really hard work here to try to raise the level of Georgia's democratic status. Georgia's president opposes the law and says that she would veto it if it passes. What does that mean? Well, she promised to do so, but she is a bit of a figurehead, uh, really, in terms of her abilities. She can veto, but the government can have its own vote in parliament to turn that veto around. You know, in 2014 in Ukraine, there was also this push-pull between a pro-Russia and a pro-Europe movement. Do you see similarities to the point that Georgia could have a revolution along the same lines as the Euromaidan protest uh, that drove out the Ukrainian government in 2014? I do see some similarities. It does re- look reminiscent of what I personally saw back in 2014 in Kiev during that period. Because I sense that the outrage is genuine. It isn't just about an opposition uh, political party or group of parties that are are trying to unite their own supporters. I see ordinary young Georgians, especially uh, Western educated or English speaking. And there is a very large percentage of this population who are pro-European. Somewhere around 80% want to be part of Europe. And they are genuinely aggrieved to see their government introducing Russian-style laws to muzzle free speech, to muzzle alternative opinions, and to basically really take control of this country in an authoritarian way. So if there is that groundswell, if it really exists, and people really are angry enough, it wouldn't surprise me if this movement was able to continue its momentum. But at the same time, this government has been extremely capable at manipulating another part of society that is very worried about uh, a Georgia becoming too pro-Western and endangering this country, somehow dragging it into another front in this war with Russia. And it'll be interesting to see whether the government is able to extract itself out of this situation now. But at the same time, I, I get a sense that a lot of Georgians really say enough is enough, that this law goes one step too far. Journalist Robin Forstier-Walker reporting from Tbilisi, Georgia, on the protests happening there this week. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Today, we remember Joseph Zuccaro, the late owner of Mr. Beef. Mr. Beef is a Chicago restaurant known for a signature Chicago sandwich. That sandwich became popular around the country last summer thanks to the TV show The Bear. 25 pounds? No, no, no. I ordered 200. What is beef? We still got that meat connected? The sandwich is called the Italian beef. It came from Italian immigrants in the early 20th century who could only buy less tender cuts of the cow. Chicago historian Sherman Thomas, who goes by Dilla, told NPR last year those cooks had to get creative. 
those same ladies discovered that if you you cook that in his own juices over a longer period of time, right? It's, it's going to be super tender, right? It's strictly our root food. It really is our food here in Chicago, as opposed to the Philly cheesesteak or a New York. Um, I don't even know if they have a meat type of sandwich in New York. I don't think so. I think it's just Sabret's <laughs> hot dogs. That's Joseph Zucchero's son, Chris, speaking to host Tony Sarabia on WBEZ's The Morning Shift. He says there are some crucial components to an Italian beef. Slow-cooked slivers of beef, an Italian relish called giardiniera, good bread, but it also comes in all sorts of textures. There's a whole lexicon for yes. every from Italian beef. You know, you can have it dry, then you can have it dipped where you take the beef, put it on the bread and kind of immerse it into Whoa. the gravy. And then you can have it super wet or extra juicy, which is when you take tongs and you stick it and you yeah. do the Dip same it. thing and then you just submerge it into the gravy. Joe Zucchero and his brother started Mr. Beef more than 40 years ago, long enough to develop some famous and loyal customers. When he was an emerging stand-up comedian, Jay Leno would sleep in his car in the parking lot. He talked about it with fellow Tonight Show host Jimmy Fallon. Oh, that's my favorite joint. Yes, I walk in, there's... Like a hundred pictures of you there. We go way back. It's a, it's a very funny place. There's no tables. That you, it's just a joint. Yeah. But it's, it's the best beef sandwich. It's you delicious. Like Last year, Joe Zucchero told NPR the bear drove a resurgence in business. Mr. Beef inspired that show. And when a TV crew took Joe to see the set they created based on the restaurant he'd started with his brother, that, he said, was priceless. They built this inside a building. And they took me to it. They wanted me to see it. And my mouth dropped. I was like, oh, my God. Joseph Zucchero was 69 years old. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, a mixed bag for Wall Street today. The Dow lost about two-tenths of a percent, 58 points. It ended the day at 32,798. S&P picked up 0.14 percent to close at 39.92. The Nasdaq picked up four-tenths of a percent to end the day at 11,576. Details coming up in just about 10 minutes on Marketplace. It's 619. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord. Owned and operated by women designer goldsmiths, creating custom and original fine jewelry for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. In sports, Celtics have lost their last three games and hope to end the streak there as they host the Portland Trailblazers at the Garden tonight, 7.30 start time. The Bruins are off tonight. Red Sox play an exhibition game tonight against Puerto Rico's ball club. It's a tune-up game for Puerto Rico as it prepares for the World Baseball Classic. The tournament that attracts teams from around the globe is now underway. Puerto Rico plays on Saturday. Meanwhile, if you're longing for the boys of summer up here, just remember it's 22 days to opening day for the Sox. It's 620. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and counseling are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 5th. Semesteroff.com. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. There's an off chance of flurries or light rain early tonight. A really good chance of clouds. Overcast skies tonight. Lows about 31. Tomorrow should bring back the clouds along with some gusty winds. 43 degrees now in Boston. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Another heavy storm system is bearing down on the West Coast, threatening more flooding, landslides, and other hazards. It's known as an atmospheric river, just like the damaging storms that soaked California earlier this year. It's the kind of extreme weather event that we're likely to see more of in a changing climate. And for lessons in how to adapt to this new reality, we looked to Sitka, Alaska, which had its own encounter with the weather phenomenon. In 2015, an intense atmospheric river triggered a series of landslides. Sitka chose to respond with science. Emily Kwong and Aaron Scott, the hosts of NPR's daily science podcast, Shortwave, have this story. Sitka's on an island on the edge of the Pacific Ocean in the Tongass National Forest. It's beautiful there, and it rains a lot, over 100 inches a year. We have beautiful rivers with salmon, and the salmon need rain. Our ecosystems need a lot of rain. This is Lisa Bush, executive director of the Sitka Sound Science Center. And Lisa never feared the rain before, but the morning of August 18th, 2015, was different. I remember my pants getting wet like all the way up to my knees, just walking from my car to the airport. So I remember thinking, this is a lot of rain, a lot of rain. Rivers in town began to rise and the land started to slide. 40 landslides were documented on Baranoff and Chichikov Islands that day. A slope above a subdivision of new homes under construction gave way. This landslide, the Kramer Avenue landslide, demolished a building and took the lives of three Sitkins, brothers Elmer and Ulysses Diaz and Sitka's building inspector, William Stortz. For days, Sitkins were shoveling debris, cooking casseroles, keeping vigil with the families of those lost and coordinating shelters for those evacuated. I can stay with a friend, so my whole house is open. Charteris has room. Pets and kids. These are locals reading Facebook posts written at the time. My home is very small, but I can offer food, blankets. Dios esté con todos ustedes. Me uno a su dolor desde acá en México. The thing for Lisa at the Sick Sound Science Center to do was to get answers. Mm-hmm. Why did this happen? Why did this rain tip the scale the way it did? And how do you stop a tragedy like this from ever happening again? Yeah, I mean, those are huge questions. Who do you call for something like that? You call scientists. (laughs) Of course you do. I mean, Lisa dialed everyone. NASA, the National Forest Service, the National Park Service, the U.S. Geological Survey. They responded so quickly, yes, how can we help you with our expertise? And all of their expertise, after years of work, led to an early warning system for landslides in Sitka. A system that's constantly updating based on the weather, and anyone can access the dashboard by typing sitkalandslide.org. Okay, so I'm looking at a clean page. There's a green check mark that says the current risk of landslide is low, and the 24-hour forecast is also low. So this is reassuring. Mm-hmm. It kind of works like a traffic light system. Right, right, right. And you saw for yourself, it's really simple to look at. But developing a system that's both science-backed and user-friendly took seven years, a $2.1 million grant from the National Science Foundation, and the involvement of an entire town. So if you're surrounded by these hillsides, how do you know which ones are at risk of sliding? 
This is the where piece of the puzzle. Where do landslides happen? I'm going to let Jason Schmidt, a local geologist, show us that. Hey, Emily. I'm here in the field, and I'm at the headscarp, so it's the place where it all started. A debris flow, that's the type of landslide we're talking about here. Okay. It happens when you get a lot of water in the system. Water that travels down through gravity and transforms layers of earth into a slurry of mud, water, and other debris, taking on the consistency of wet cement. It can move up to 25 miles per hour, giving you very little time to get out of the way. And so this is what happened on Kramer Avenue in 2015? It is. Okay. And geology tells us that new landslides are likely to form in the footprint of these old landslides which is telling. So when Sitka's Geotask Force started discussing that, the Forest Service, Lisa says, was like, hold on. We have a landslide inventory that we've been keeping track of for the last 50 years in the area. Would that be helpful? And we were all like, what? Historical data, yes. (laughs) Hello, we didn't even know that they were doing that. I love it when discovering a database is like discovering hidden treasure. Yes, and that trove of data wound up in the hands of Annette Patton, a postdoc at the University of Oregon and now lead geologist on this project. So with a sense of how slopes have failed before, Annette, along with Josh Roaring at the University of Oregon, wanted to know what amount of rain tips the balance. So, like, do certain amounts of rainfall predictably lead to landslide risk? Something like that, yep. Like, if it rains really hard for an hour, is that what triggers a landslide? We didn't know for sure exactly what time scale of heavy rainfall would trigger a landslide. So that's where we wanted to start. So Annette combined this landslide inventory that the Forest Service happened to have with Sitka's rain record, 20 years of data gathered at the airport. She started to see a pattern. Hmm. Five of the most catastrophic landslides in the last decade, ones that blocked roads, destroyed human life and property, they all saw a certain amount of rain in a three-hour interval. Ooh, so how much? How much rain? It's not an absolute because the model is more designed to calculate probability. So a high-risk probability warning is triggered around 1.3 inches of rain in a three-hour interval. And along the way to creating this early warning system, the Science Center consulted the community as much as possible. Sika Tribe of Alaska contributed traditional knowledge about landslides and human movement. That's on the dashboard. And to make sure the warning system actually reaches everyone in town, the Science Center decided to map the social networks. Robert Lempert led this part. He's a senior scientist at the RAND Corporation and hosted all of these co-designed workshops. We um, ran a game, an exercise, where we asked everybody in the room, and there's about 20 people or so, to fill out a little form and say whom in the room would they take shopping for clothes to get good advice on, you know, what to buy. And certain names kept coming up again and again. 50 people who should know about the landslide early warning system. And this idea that you've got Individuals who have worked through the process, who now, you know, trust this body of information, trust each other. This kind of collaboration, it's only becoming more important, right? I mean, these landslides, they're connected to climate change. Southeast Alaska is going to see more extreme rainfall. Yeah, I mean, a lot of places are going to see more rainfall, um, which raises the question, are other communities taking note of this project? Yes, yes. Communities who also worry about landslides and other things, which is why the Science Center hopes to bring this predictive modeling to six other rural and tribal communities in southeast Alaska. Oh, great. The NSF-funded project, which is called Kutte, which is the Slingit word for weather, 
hopes to create a regional system for warning people about flooding, avalanches, and landslides. These natural hazards can't be stopped, at least not yet, but Lisa Bush says people can learn to live with them. It's heartening to see a community adapt and move on. Yes, we have to live among landslides. We have to live in a changed world. And that's not easy, but it's heartening when people do it. Especially, Erin, I think at the local level, to keep people safe. I can't think of a better use for science. That was Emily Kwong and Erin Scott from NPR's daily science podcast, Shortwave. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. We could see light snow or rain before midnight with clouds all night long, some strong winds, overnight lows about freezing. Tomorrow could reach more than 20 mile an hour winds, cloudy again. Slight chance of showers should be in the mid 40s. Once again, temperatures holding to the 40s on Friday. We may finally have a mainly sunny day Friday. Could be back to the gray though on Saturday. This is WBUR. It's 630. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com.